Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Recording at Georgetown University's History Department, I'm Graham Almond Pitts. And I'm Faisal Hussein. The theme of our podcast today is the military and environmental history of the early modern Ottoman Empire. Specifically, we will focus on the interplay between warfare and the dynamic landscapes of the Hungarian frontier. Joining us is Gabor Augustin, a leading scholar of Ottoman military history. In the English-speaking world, Professor Augustin is best known for his book, Guns for the Sultan, which has been translated into Turkish and German. At Georgetown, he has trained generations of Ottomanists, including the founders of this podcast, Imrasafa Gurkhan and Chris Grayton. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Augustin. Thank you very much for interviewing me. So uh, you're known for telling a joke that goes, military history is to history as military music is to music. I talked to you about this before, and you sort of qualified the fact that you do a particular kind of military history. And I think maybe this is important for our our listeners at the outset to say what we mean by military history. Yours is not the military history of a military academy in the United States or elsewhere. Yes, um, I think it's not a joke. Uh, I read it in John Lynn's article, who wrote about the status of military history in the United States. From the 1990s, 80s, there is a s- emergence of a new military history. And I don't consider myself a military historian. I never did my military service, although I worked as an interpreter for uh, the Turkish army and the Hungarian army. I'm not interested in boys and toys, uh, and I consider myself a historian of economics, environment, and society, and a historian of the interactions of these three. New military history was born as a consequence of so-called military revolution, uh, which means that from the mid-15th century through the 1800s, Uh, war changed drastically. And the main changes occurred uh, with regard to the size, the scale of warfare, uh, the the, the size of mobilized soldiers and war material, and the impact of war upon the economy, resource mobilization, uh, the administration uh, that had to marshal those resources. So I am dealing with with these capabilities of the state to marshal resources and how this impacted society's uh, way, the conduct of war and the environment and how environment impacted the conduct of war. Great. I would like to give some background why Hungarian historians and Hungarian Ottomanists are concerned and were pioneers in Uh, looking at this new uh, military history and the impact of wars on environment. There was a huge debate in Hungary uh, with regard to the impact of the Turkish wars upon uh, the population 
and environment. And uh, the textbook we, we were reading were telling us, oh, the Turks were so cruel, uh, they, uh, they caused uh, uh, the emergence of the great Hungarian plane, uh, uh, the it's so-called a Pusta. It's yeah, a degradation but, narrative. Exactly. And, but, but it had many challenges, even in the 1930s. And, of course, if you do a comparative history, you see that Hungary wasn't unique in terms of uh, depopulation caused by wars uh, and disease or deforestation. So what I did, and I was influenced by my own uh, teachers and professors, uh, my first chair was, in, in fact, a pioneer in envi- introducing environmental history into Hungary. Another professor we, we work with, Geza Parish, was a pioneer on provisioning, how armies were provisioned and how it related to agricultural production, etc., etc., as you've mentioned, is not a question that's just germane to the military as a military force, as a tactical force, right? This is something that's shaping society in Hungary and elsewhere. So you talked about the military revolution and how uh, the rise of more complex empires, both in the East and the West, uh, have been able to mobilize manpower and resources on a larger scale, probably difficult to do in earlier periods of time, this must have had an impact on the landscape of the region and placed greater pressure on the environment. Can you elaborate more on how the military revolution influenced and impacted the environment? One of the important things here uh, is the mass... um, adaption and deployment of firearms as a tool of warfare, which dramatically changed the nature of military conflicts. And uh, more importantly for our purposes, the ensuing arms race and the mass production and mass employment of gunpowder weapons and the building of large artillery fortifications, which all associated with the military revolution, had a major impact on forests, saltpeter and gunpowder works, cannon foundries and iron works required fuel wood on a scale not seen before the so-called gunpowder era. Weapons and ammunition had to be transported on thousands of carts and aboard hundreds of ships and boats, which required timber, as did the construction of fortresses, larger armies, and fortifications had more horses and draft animals, which depended on pasture lands. So all these had major impacts. Just to give you one example, I don't, do not want to exaggerate the impact of gunpowder production, but the, the two medium-sized gunpowder works, Ottoman gunpowder works uh, in Hungary, produced 110 metric tons of gunpowder in Hungary, which required some 1,500 metric tons of firewood, or about the annual yield of about 60 square kilometers of woodland. So uh, we shouldn't overemphasize, because uh, if my calculations are right, the total production of the Ottoman gunpowder mills used as much wood as a city of about 200,000. That is probably half of the population of late 16th century 
uh, Ottoman Constantinople, Istanbul. So I think what really mattered is the construction work of fortresses in Hungary. Almost all the fortresses were built of wood, and they had to be renewed every 10 years. And boats build a construction of boats, construction of ships. We don't think about, when we talk about the Ottoman Navy, we think about the Ottoman Navy in the Mediterranean. The Ottomans had hundreds, hundreds of smaller ships on the Danube, the Morava, the Sava, and the other, uh, other rivers. They had a huge river flotillas, and they had to rebuild it. So if you look at the mobilization orders in, um, uh, before uh, the major campaigns, you would see that the central government would order 200 boats or ships built here in Rushchuk along the Danube or in Silistra or in Belgrade and other places. And we are talking about the hundreds of these ships. Just to add something, uh, a, a note to that, the Danube is in no way uh, my area of expertise, but in the archive when I was doing research, there is a plethora of uh, documents dealing with uh, various topics related to the Danube and just waiting for someone to examine them comprehensively and write something about like the Ottoman Danube, even though the Ottoman Empire was not in charge of the whole uh, flow of the river, but um, even the segment that was under Ottoman control, we know so much about it, uh, thanks to um, the Ottoman documentation. And the same can be uh, done for your area of research, the, the, the Tigers and Euphrates River, which was very, very important in supplying the troops fighting against the Safavids and on that part of the empire. How much is this a global story, I think, where is this, this is happening in other empires elsewhere in the world, where the human relationship to the environment seems to be changing about the time period that you're interested in, sometime in the 16th century where this mobilization of resources is multiplying to new scales. It is, it is everywhere. And there are offices that were created for uh, the purposes of dealing with these issues uh, as part of uh, bureaucracies of empires. So there are divisions uh, that care about bridge building. There are divisions in the Habsburg army who are responsible for, uh, for shipbuilding. There are divisions who, uh, and uh, administrative offices uh, whose responsibility is um, scouting of um, and and making sure that the troops that are uh, marching had clean uh, drinking water, for instance. That's a major problem uh, in, in this area. And the Ottomans do the same. So uh, river crossings, it's very dangerous to cross the rivers. So you have to know where to cross those rivers, how long it would you take uh, to build bridges, what type of bridges, and you have to make sure that all the building material is there uh, before the army uh, reaches that point of crossing. I'm interested in your reference to clean water, because if there's heightened concern about clean water during these times in relation to these campaigns, we might surmise that the disease ecology has changed. You have bigger armies in the field, they're manipulating the environment in new ways. They're deforesting land. I mean, do you have any evidence that the military revolution created no disease environments? What kind of responses do you see to those? There is a very interesting body of sources, about 60 or 70 sources written in the 16th and 17th century, mainly in Latin and German, 
by Castrenzis. These were field doctors, field physicians who followed the imperial Habsburg armies, and they described what had been one of the major concerns of the time, Morbus Hungaricus, uh, a Hungarian uh, uh, fever, uh, which was a type of typhoid fever. Right. And it had to do with malnutrition uh, and the lack of care of what they ate, right. how they... Dirty water, uh, too. Dirty water and uh, semi-cooked food, for instance, mm. uh, and bad provisioning. Right. That's the 16th century. By the 17th century, and of, uh, both uh, these castrenses, these field doctors, and... The Ottoman sources, like Evliya Celebi, commented on the fact that how much cleaner the Ottomans were, for instance, in dealing with the corpse. So, for instance, there was an army of uh, grave diggers following the Ottomans so that they um, made sure that the corpse of the fallen were uh, buried deep enough, which wasn't the case in the Habsburg armies. And, of course, that would open all kinds of uh, possibilities for infection. But the very, very thing that uh, y- you are dealing with huge masses of people uh, in very bad hygienic situation, crammed together, uh, malnutrition, and that's uh, the, the good recipe for, uh, for disease. And then these armies are marching from town to town, bringing the disease and spreading the disease with them. So supposedly, this Morbus Hungaricus was spread into Germany, and then it was known as a Hungarian fever uh, fever in uh, 1542 when the imperial army was returning uh, from a campaign against the Ottomans from Hungary. Something related to diseases, because you make the case in one article you've written in 2009 that... People at the time saw, made a link between the the emergence of uh, new diseases with the expansion of wetlands at the time. Can you talk about why wetlands at the time were expanding, and d- did it have anything to do with uh, warfare? Both climatic changes and warfare. We are talking about the Little Ice Age and um, uh, the effects of the Little Ice Age. Uh, it was everywhere, but it had some local specialities. And um, it, it so happened that uh, the late 16th centuries and the late 17th centuries, which coincided with the two major wars that the Ottomans and the Habsburgs uh, were fighting in Hungary, had the most negative effects. The temperature dropped fell them more than one Celsius, and rainfall usually concentrated in midsummer. This is the time when the armies were marching campaign and campaign season, and that would affect uh, that might lead to crop fa- failures, uh, and of course uh, higher levels of water. And we do know that I mentioned that the Lake Balaton, which is the largest lake in Transdanubia in uh, the western part of Hungary, the water level uh, increased. That affected how villages, certain villages had to move up and further from the lake. But at the same time, the huge marshes created a, a perfect environment uh, for, uh, for fortresses. And in Hungary, a whole type of fortresses, which we call marsh fortresses, emerged. And if you look at the uh, Ottoman geographers or, and travelers who traveled into Hungary, they 
describe many of these fortresses as island fortresses surrounded by waters. Now, sometimes the military engineers flooded the area around the fortress so that to make it uh, the def- so that to enhance defense capabilities. Okay, so there is the human impact, uh, and there are two sides of human impact. You know, previously in peacetime, people cared about, and they had all kinds of rules how to regulate the floodplains and the uh, riverbeds, etc., etc. Wartime, you cannot do this. So nature takes over, plus humankind uses nature and marshlands to increase the uh, capabilities, the defense capabilities, so uh, it's an intentional, intentionally created marshes. Now, of course, uh, evaporation uh, increases, and in a marshy environment, you have mosquitoes and, and, and other, uh, uh, you know, insects, uh, which bother, you cannot sleep, you already malnutrition, you cannot sleep. Uh, uh, because of the little ice age, these customances uh, explain us that it was so wet. Uh, the discrepancy between uh, day temperature and the night temperature was huge, and it was very cold uh, during the night, and it was very wet. They say that despite the fact that they had a double-layer tent, by morning, most soldiers were soaking wet. So this all affected how people felt and how they uh, waged wars. This is very exciting and... Uh interesting professor Augustoon we have talked about forests and woodlands and warfare and how they all reinforced each other like the exploitation of uh, forests and the expansion of uh, woodlands and the common occurrence of uh, military battles between the Ottoman Empire and its neighbors let us talk about cattle because this is another uh, theme you have written about you have said in one article that the 16th century was the golden era of the Hungarian cattle trade. And this is very interesting because so far you have been talking about uh, war and human suffering. So how could cattle in this very difficult environment, a a war zone, how could cattle thrive in this uh, situation? Uh, There are many reasons for the golden age of the Hungarian cattle trade. Uh, one is economic, and uh, the sources are in Western Europe. Population increase uh, opened uh, huge markets, and it required, uh, you know, uh, these people uh, needed more uh, staple. And uh, uh, the Hungary provided a uh, lot of the food, a lot of the meat that uh, northern Italian towns and southern German towns uh, consumed. And we do have the, uh, the text registers, customs registers, and other account books uh, from which we surmise that uh, by the 1570s, uh, a total annual cattle export from Hungary could have topped some 150 heads of cattle per year. 150,000. 
150,000, sorry, 150,000 cattle, cattle in, um, in one year, which uh, were sent to Austria and Upper Germany, and uh, the rest went to Venice. And, um, but it had to do something with war as well, because if you have uh, war, you invest in commodities that can be sheltered when the armies are coming. So you just can move with your cattle herds to a different place. You don't invest in physical structures because that could be destroyed. Not like a wheat field. You can't move your wheat fields when the Ottoman armies are coming. Exactly. So uh, it it did something. It had to do something with with war as well. Plus, you know, uh, this frontier, which was a major divide between Christendom and, and Islam, if you will, between the two superpowers of the time, the Ottomans and the Habsburgs, we are talking about probably a combined of 50,000, 70,000 soldiers. They had to be fed as well. And, uh, and uh, feeding the armies is usually a, a good business. And when we talk about deforestation, uh, historians pointed to the fact how cattle trade might have affected uh, the forests because they needed more uh, grasslands so there is a huge clearing of the forests for, uh, uh, for because of the cattle trade. To follow up on that, some other historians who are not necessarily experts on Hungary uh, in particular, like uh, Professor William McNeil, he has written a book on the step, uh, the, Euro- the European step. And so when you talk about the predominance of cattle trade and herding in Hungary. Someone like Professor William McNeil, he this is the way he presented Hungary, like the Hungarian landscape, as just mostly um, a steppe, uh, an arid steppe, uh, dominated by cattle thieves that was not really of any major significance to the what he calls the rise of the West in the second half of the second millennium. Do you agree with this uh, portrayal of the Hungarian landscape as just an arid step? First of all, the pusta nature, you know, the semi-arid nature of the great Hungarian plain. And we are talking about a territory of probably 100,000 square kilometers, which is the size of modern Hungary. And pusta is the Hungarian term to describe the landscape. Yeah, pusta is the Hungarian term to describe the landscape, this semi-arid uh, step, but this is this was not how Hungary looked like in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. There were more forests until the uh, end of the 17th century. We do know that there were huge forests around Debrecen, which is the capital of the Pusta, the Hungarian plain, um, and we do know this from from orders that kings allowed. Uh, this, uh, the citizens, the town folks of Debrecen to use the forest just next to the town uh, as building material. Uh, but for reasons we just talked about, there's a major deforestation in Hungary, but it wasn't still, you know, pusta or semi-arid grassland, but it was you know, huge territories uh, were occupied by marshes. You know, the pusta character and the semi-arid character of the Hungarian uh, Great Plain had to do with the major 
river regulations in the 19th century. So it had more effect than the so-called Turkish wars uh, on on the nature, on the environment in Hungary. Um, I think this is very important to keep in mind and clarifies many of the misconceptions probably. One, uh, number one, you make the case that the landscape was more diverse. So there were... Uh, there was this uh, semi-arid steppe, but also at the same time there were expansion of uh, woodlands at the time uh, because of the Little Ice Age and because of warfare. And also at the same time, even those, uh, even the semi-arid steppe was very historical. It emerged at a specific time for specific reasons and this ecological zone of the steppe were not there forever. They emerged at a certain point. For um, in this context that we are talking about now, yeah, even yeah, even uh, as early as the twentieth century, we knew know it for ethnographical research that towns on the Great Hungarian Plain sometimes the town folks had to go to the graveyard to the cemetery on boats in territories which are. On the Great Hangar and Plain, and and these are the examples of the pusta. These are the examples of the semi-arid nature of the Hungarian landscape. But yet, in the early, in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, the folks when they had to go to the cemetery, they had to use boats because it was such a marshal. And, and this and this is an important moment to reiterate the value of environmental history because it allows us to see the, the dynamism of the landscape. And and I would like to add uh, another note that it's very nice that we make great generalizations. And the Hungarians were very good, you know. In the early 20th century, mid-20th century, they collected data. There is a, a two- or three-volume work that collected data as to the temperature from written sources. And now climate historians are using that as a major database. Uh, and and we know the major trends, how the Little Ice Age affected seasons, uh, precipitation, uh, weather conditions, and so on. But you have to look at the anomalies. i give you one example. I was reading lately uh, the, the memoirs of the commanders of the Habsburg armies in uh, the 1680s. 1686. Six was a, an unusually dry summer. So these commanders, time and again, comment that we are marching and we are camping on a territory which is usually a marshland, unapproachable, but because of this extreme dry and hot summer, we were able to camp here and we were able to cross here. So uh, uniqueness and uh, we have to be better not to make great generalizations, but to acknowledge the specificity of time and, uh, and place. place. Yeah. This is the Ottoman History Podcast. We're talking to Gabor Augustson about war and the environment on the Ottoman Habsburg frontier. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Pero 
We're back now, and this is the Ottoman History Podcast, talking to Gabor Augustone about war and the environment in the Ottoman Empire. Another question we wanted to ask you about, because we talked about the Little Ice Age already, is the major work um, done by Sam White. His book was published in 2011 on the Ottoman Empire during the Little Ice Age, and he basically argues that it is difficult to understand Ottoman history in the 16th and 17th centuries without seeing the Ottoman Empire working and operating in the context of the ecological pressures of the Little Ice Age. His book mostly focuses on Anatolia and the Jilali Rebellion, and he gives some sporadic examples from Egypt, sometimes Iraq and Syria. For someone like you who works on Hungary at the same time, how would you intervene and what do you challenge in his uh, thesis or what do you support and how the experience of Hungary contributes to um, environmental historians' discussion about the Ottoman Empire and the Little Ice Age? The connection or the possible connection uh, between the Little Ice Age and the Jalal Rebellions is not new. It was uh, first raised by William Grisford and it's interesting and I think it should be studied. My concern with the book is the the relatively modest source base and database uh, upon which a major theory is based. A second concern is the fact that the Ottoman Empire was so huge that it had many ecological zones, so uh, certain weather patterns would affect uh, the population in different ecological zones. Give you give you one example. You know, if you have uh, a very wet uh, season uh, that might destroy, especially if you have rainfall and precipitation during summer, might destroy your crops, your wheat fields. But the same weather pattern is very good for your grasslands. So. I think we have to be more cautious and take into consideration the many ecological zones. Professor McNeil, uh, John McNeil, talks about how the Ottoman Empire had uh, complementary environmental zones and ecological zones, and that made it uh, made the empire less susceptible to crop failures or uh, ecological. Uh, disasters because if in one region uh, you experience the crop failures, crop failure, uh, other regions could provide food uh, to those regions. But in general, the impact of the Little Ice Age in Hungary, well, you see it present in the sources, but it's probably just the experience of the outcomes were not necessarily similar to other, to how they played out in other regions. It's it's everywhere. It's a major, and I think military historians or economic historians had have to take into consideration the Little Ice Age because it affected the production. We are talking about regimes where you know ninety ninety five percent of the population live from agriculture, and of course, changing weather patterns uh, affected agriculture uh, to a, a great deal. So we have to take it into consideration, but. If you look at the population, because uh, Sam White 
looks at the population as well. And there had been major debates in the Ottoman among Ottomanists about the possibility of a population pressure that is up until the 16th century population supposedly increased more rapidly than the extension of the agricultural production and uh, that uh, some people cited as a possible reason of the Jalali rebellions, these uh, uh, large-scale rebellions of the Anatolian uh, countryside in the late 16th century and early 17th centuries, and some wide added to this uh, the possible impact of the Little Ice Age. In Hungary, there are different trends in the population up until the major wars at the end of the 16th century, population somewhat increases, but because of the long war at the end of the 16th century and the end of the 17th century, population decreased. And it ended up about the same uh, 3.5, 3.1 million people, which was the population of Hungary at the beginning of the major wars in the 16th century. This is really important because um, so far, I mean, the situation is improving uh, now, but so uh, for a long time, environmental histories of the early modern period, and especially the Little Ice Age, the works done in this uh, field have largely ignored the Ottoman experience. And I think, uh, like especially like John Richards, he's written a book, The Unending Frontier, I think 2003, and he, it's a global environmental history of the early modern period. And he talks about all regions around the world, North America, South America, China, East, East Asia, South Asia, uh, even Russia. But he says almost nothing about the Ottoman Empire. And I think this work is really, the work of Professor Augustin fills very important gap that um, I'm sure not only historians will be interested in, but also scientists and uh, climatologists who want to uh, have a better understanding of the uh, Little Ice Age. Because from my own uh, very short conversations with uh, climatologists also, the question of the Little Ice Age is still not a settled question. They're still um, debating whether there was really a Little Ice Age and what it was and how uh, important it was for various societies around the world. As we draw to a close... I'm curious about how you see the military revolution and what we're talking about is this mass mobilization and a president mobilization of resources affecting relationships between classes of people in the Ottoman Empire. So what's sort of the social history of this? Are people getting rich off of producing for the war effort or is this something that the state's controlling? I mean, are there sectors of society that have a stake in this one way or another? Does this change the relationship between state and society in terms of conscription? Ottoman history has been very uh, state-centered history. And we assume that wars were ordered, mobilization was done, and wars were waged by the state because of the states uh, and according to the intentions of the state. It changes. And I think it has never been the case. Uh, in the early era, uh, in the early conquest of the Balkans, the so-called Uch Beyleri, martial lords, uh, were as important, if not more important, than the early Ottoman sultans. Most of what was conquered 
in the Balkans was done by these martial lords. Many of the major wars started from local conflicts. The so-called Long War with the Habsburgs at the end of the 16th century started in Bosnia and grew from a small-scale frontier warfare. Now, militaries, because of the military revolution, changed a lot. In the 16th century, under Suleiman's time, uh, the bulk of the army was the so-called Timariot, uh, forces that were uh, paid by these military prebends or military thieves, the so-called Timar system. 70% of a mobilized army consisted of them. And the rest were uh, the standing forces of the sultan. You know, we always talk about the janissaries, but they were not more than probably 10% of the mobilized army. By the end of the 17th century, these guys would comprise probably 50% of the mobilized army. So you have a professionalization of the army. You have a professionalization, but we are talking about the effects, the economic and financial effects. It's a huge burden on the treasury. Since reasons I don't want to go into detail, the Timariot Sipahi uh, discovery lost its uh, military volume. So the Timar system still remains, but it is given to provincial governors, district governors, who would have larger and larger private armies. So by the end of the 17th century, 20-25% of the army are these private armies. And there are those who realize that the state was unable to mobilize the resources, to recruit enough soldiers, so they step in. These are the uh, 18th century's local notables who would have their own private armies or who would uh, give the Ottoman armies hundreds of horses or camels or foodstuff, and you ask whether some profited. These guys would profit uh, from warfare because of the inability of the state to recruit soldiers and provision soldiers single-handedly because we are talking about much larger armies. So probably the mobilized army size at the end of the 17th century is twice as much as under Suleiman. So these are the people and these and uh, you know these local governors and that those regions also profited from war making, supplying war, uh, provisioning armies. So, so is that something particular about borderlands in some senses? Nope. Uh, nope. This is how it has been. One of the major criticism of the so-called military revolution that, again, in Western European context, Geoffrey Parker pays attention of the state and the state capabilities. And he claims that because of the uh, major burden of warfare, there is a centralization and the emergence of absolute states is explained by the military burden. Whereas you know, state, state recruited, state maintained, state paid armies are an anomaly, according to Parrot, Professor Parrot, who says that these state armies existed uh, only from the 1760s until the 1960s. Prior to that, and after that, it was outsourcing, military outsourcing, that defined uh, making wars. And we see it in the Ottoman case. So we can explain the rise of the ions, these local notables, in a different way if you pay attention how war-making created 
possibilities and opportunities for these guys to amass wealth because their soldiers and their provisions were needed for the war making. Is there sort of an, an environmental component to the the demise of the Ottoman uh, the Ottoman military presence in Hungary? I.e., is there a milit- is there an environmental explanation, or how did the environment play a role after after the Habsburgs reconquered Hungary? Yes, uh, from the Ottomans, the border. This is by the Peace Treaty of Karlovitz, 1699. So after the second failed uh, Ottoman siege of Vienna. Uh, 1683, there's a major war, there is a holy league fighting against the Ottomans, and step by step they would reconquer the whole of Hungary. And the border would become again the the Danube and the Sava River, as it had been prior to the Ottoman conquest of Hungary. The Danube, by the way, had been uh, the, bo- uh, the borderline between major empires. It was the borderline of the Roman Empire, the Lo- Roman limits. It was the northern uh, border of the Byzantine Empire, etc., etc. So it becomes again the major borderland. And now the Habsburgs would create what they call the Militärgrenze, the military frontier based on those rivers. And of course, it would affect environment as well because of the building of new fortresses. Uh, Now you have new institutions and new concepts of border management. Uh, The Ottomans, for the very first time, would accept the territorial integrity of the other side. So you have population movement control. Uh, You have uh, quarantines uh, so that, uh, uh, you know, subjects coming from the Ottoman Empire with passports uh, would be admitted, but also they were careful not to bring disease into uh, the Habsburg lands. And also, after the reconquest of uh, Hungary, they realized how desolated, how deserted, how deforested uh, the Hungarian plain was. And there is a major initiative of reforestation, and this is when Acacia appeared in the Carpathian Basin. And so your answer there, uh, you distinguish between the geographical fact that is the Danube, which is a lasting geographical feature of the military geography, against environment, which is dynamic, right? You have the Habsburgs controlling disease ecologies and in changing ways. You have the... And changing the environment by attempts of reforestation, for instance. And... um, and 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 uh, and helping uh, reinvigorate agriculture as well. This is a very fascinating discussion. I want to thank you for giving us the time to talk to you, uh, Professor Augustin. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. For those who are listening and want to find out more about the topic, we have a short bibliography on our website, which includes the publications of Professor Augustin and some other helpful monographs and articles. I want to thank you all for listening. Please tune in next time. Until then, take care.